This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Jennifer Saran, CFO SmartSheet, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 471. provider, uh, and that's a, a, a really big market, as well as then uh, working kind of on the inside to see if we can't transform just how life insurance is, is underwritten and sold. We do have a, a very innovative group where we're working on epigenetic-based research, uh, think 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all the things that are going on around genetic and epigenetics and how they apply to your lifestyle and how uh, how you can manage, if you will, and, and use your epigenetics to understand not only, you know, where are my parents from and you know, how much German do I have in me, but you can also start to begin to see what my longevity might be, what my propensity to get a certain illness is. I did not plan to be part of the kind of epigenetics into financial services megatrend. Um, I was fortuitous and kind of found my way in. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Bill Atkinson of GHG Holdings. I suspected on today's show we would be hearing about liquidity offerings from a Minneapolis financial services company and all went as planned until Bill Atkinson careened into the land of epigenetics, an area of research we've been hearing about from our biotech CFOs more than our financial services CFOs, but the financial services world and the world of epigenetics are now one, at least at GHG Holdings. We begin after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com.
Services of Minneapolis, a financial services firm providing liquidity to consumers and investors across the U.S. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Good to be here. So what we like to do, Bill, is open up before we find out about GWG. Uh, we'd like to ask our guests to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. What, what comes to mind for you? My answer may be a little uh, counterintuitive, at least, at least the first point. And I'd say that um, yeah, I, I went through public accounting and a typical accounting track, but I think one of, the, one of the main things as I look back now is the fact that I left accounting. Uh, and I, I got exposure, and I did it really on purpose, but I, I got exposure to a lot of other parts of the business. And so I'm a financial service guy. I spent a lot of time in investment banking and mortgages. And so um, I left the accounting kind of uh, jobs for quite a long time. I'd say the better part of, let's call it 15 years to use round terms. And, um, and so I was able to get experience in capital markets, risk management, operations, credit. Uh, I spent time overseas uh, internationally in, in some of these roles. And as I look back now, uh, kind of coming full circle uh, back to the CFO desk, um, you know, I have a really good understanding of a lot of the other areas uh, of the financial services business. And I think that is a key as, as you think of, as I think about career development. And, and you know, when I talk to younger people and people that are looking to be on the CFO track, I always tell them, you know, you know, leave accounting, but, but always keep in touch with it. And I did that in a lot of these roles, and I had enough, uh, obviously, accounting background to be able to add value and understand uh, some of the guardrails that you need to follow, um, even when you're not in the accounting role. But, you know, leave it, get more, get more experiences, you know, do different things in your career, but don't go too far from it because uh, it has happened to me as kind of my, as I got older and my career progressed, I found myself perfectly suited for the CFO uh, job because I really have that breadth of experience. One of the interesting tours of duty uh, you had uh, as a CFO was uh, at the Home Ownership Preservation Foundation. Tell us something about that organization, the role it plays in business, and what you felt you brought uh, to that CFO role. Sure. That uh, we'll call it HPF for short, and the the role of HPF really uh, really gave me some insight into another part of the business, uh, and, and really got me more in tune with the clients. And I'll just give you two seconds of background. HPF essentially was a, a nonprofit created with inside of General Motors, which was a, a place I worked. I worked in a subsidiary there prior to that. And it was responsible during the credit crisis for helping people who were struggling making their uh, mortgage payments, uh, helping them figure out how to stay in their homes, and helping them figure out how to access um, the various loan modification and other programs that were being offered by the Bush administration and then the Obama administration. And so we were receiving 10,000 phone calls a day at the height of the crisis. And it really was an eye-opener in terms of the, you know, the real human impact and the, uh, the, the, 
the depth and breadth of the credit crisis and and how many people were, you know, struggling to make their payments and, and keep up on their obligations. And so, from a from a personal perspective, it really drove home the client side of it and and how they use the products and and what these products mean at the time this is mortgage and what these products mean to these families. And from a professional side, of course, it gave me another dimension of my experience. And now this is all through loss mitigation and, and trying to find the best resolution for the customer as well as for the, the holder of the, of the mortgage. And so it, it is, it's a funny kind of detour, but when you think of it now and I look back on it, it's a vital part of it because, again, it got me very close to the customer and reminded me, as a, as a, as a credit crisis did, uh, of the consequences of products and the markets and how all that can, um, you know, come together uh, when you're looking at your, you know, from your current role, uh, looking at strategy, looking at products, looking at customers. Uh, you know, the credit crisis and my time at HPF uh, are forever kind of burned into how now how I look at suitability and clients and, and just markets in general. So, um, great company, helped a lot of people, and it was a... Um, a really key element of kind of who I am personally sitting here today and certainly professionally. Yeah, very often we speak to CFOs from different industries, high tech, life sciences, manufacturing. Now, you're in financial services clearly, but I see like a, a specialization in liquidity challenges for uh, the consumer as well as small business perhaps. But, but it seems to me that that became sort of a specialization, um, allowing you to find your way to GWG, or am I uh, getting the path a little snarled? No, no, I, I think you're right. I, I, would, I would put it a, a little differently. And, and uh, as I look back at my career, and, and even really up to this moment, uh, I have been drawn more personally to newer initiatives, maybe niche markets, um, places where um, you can contribute across a, maybe a wider spectrum than, let's say, a very large, mature company. Um, and, you know, my time at General Motors, my time at Merrill Lynch over in London, uh, certainly my time at HPF, and then coming here to GWG, you know, we're not short on, on acronyms here, all kind of have something in common, and that is kind of working in niche markets, working, like you mentioned, in liquidity uh, kind of areas. Um, and they've not all been successful. I think that's another uh, part as I look back. Um, you hear people say sometimes when they look back upon a career or a project and they say, had I known, you know, had I known then what I know now, I never would have embarked on that particular project. But as I look back, I think risk-taking um, is also a big element to becoming a good CFO because you, um, whether you're talking about capital, I mean, you have to put capital to risk, to, to, to at risk to get returns, or whether you're talking about your career, you know, you need to leverage yourself and, and get into situations where you're being stretched. And sometimes it's not comfortable and it's not super fun, but with the, um, you know, the wisdom of time and perspective, you can see those areas where, 
um, being stretched and, and working out in difficult situations. I mean, the credit crisis was a you know five or six year difficult situation. When you want to think of you know from a, a career perspective, it teaches you resilience and it teaches you uh, you know there's a you know there's a lot of lessons in failure and in, in things that don't work all that well. And so uh, I think that's also important as you're looking at a career. Risk taking is is a good thing and um, it, it teaches you as you get into later in your career when you get to that CFO role, uh, you know, it, it, it teaches you how to balance it a little bit better and it teaches you to be comfortable with uh, with risk because, you know, you, you need to take it in various forms depending on if you're in financial services or other industries that I'm not expert at. Um, but you can't sit there and do nothing. We, we know the outcome of that. Well, we'll likely want to uh, ask you to look back some more for us when we uh, get to our mentoring round a little later in the interview. But Right now, let's let's find out about GWG. What would you tell us about the types of offerings that GWG offers in in, in 2019? Now, just to jump forward. Sure, GWG is a uh, basically a provider of liquidity uh, for investors and regular people who have illiquid assets that they're looking that they need liquidity for now. That sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo, but basically uh, there are people that own assets that for one reason or another, uh, they need to get liquidity from those assets. We started with life insurance, so we still have a, a, a good business in life insurance where individuals who own life insurance and they don't need it or they don't want it or they can no longer afford it, um, we can provide liquidity by essentially purchasing their life insurance policy. We're partnering with them so they can keep part of the benefit uh, without any premium burden going forward. That's really where we began with our transaction with the beneficiary company, which is a, a company uh, based out of Dallas, Texas, that we just closed here uh, at the end of 2017. Uh, their business model is now to take liquidity and to provide that to people who own illiquid investments. Now, that might be private equity funds, it could be hedge funds, it could be private placements. There is a huge opportunity of, uh, out there, particularly with the aging of the, the baby boomers who, who own these uh, various illiquid investments that um, need liquidity for them. And at, at, the, at the core of it, that's really what GWG does. The, the beneficial acquisition kind of extends our reach from the life insurance space only now to encompass a much broader spectrum of alternative assets. Um, and, and that's really the, the core of what GWG is as we sit here today. We do also have, and this kind of plays in very well with, uh, with what I like to do and, and as, as a CFO and as a person, we do have a, a very innovative group where we're working on uh, epigenetic-based research uh, think 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all the things that are going on around genetic and epigenetics and how they apply to your lifestyle and how uh, how you can manage, if you will, and, and use your epigenetics to understand not only, you know, where are my parents from and you know, how much German do I have in me, but you can also start to begin to see what my longevity might be, what my propensity to get a certain illness is. There's a a lot going on around there, and, and GWG has taken uh, that and license and technology, and we're working in the space of life insurance. So how can we make life insurance 
faster and easier for the customer to purchase, and how can we make it more, um, make the underwriter of it uh, be able to underwrite it more um, accurately and to price it more accurately. And so we believe that, number one, this is a, a mega trend, uh, which is something that when you think of a career you want to try to attach yourself to, sometimes these, you can be lucky, and sometimes you can be, um, you can you can plan it out ahead of time. I did not plan to be part of the kind of the epigenetics into financial services megatrend. Um, I was fortuitous and kind of found my way in, but um, we believe that it's a megatrend. Uh, and even if I just heard an, uh, a 23andMe commercial today coming in, and a year ago it was all about, hey, find out where you're from and isn't this fun and neat and it's really a cool thing around the dinner table. Now it's mostly about find out about your health, find out your propensity to get this disease, find out how you can um, take steps to, you know, manage your health better, all by using uh, basically genetic, um, you know, sequencing, which has become now uh, much more cost-effective to do. So GWG really is kind of two things. It's the, it's the liquidity provider, uh, and that's a, a, a really big market, as well as then uh, working kind of on the inside to see if we can't transform just how life insurance is, is underwritten and sold. Curious now, um, when you go to a networking event where there are other CFOs, most likely from other industries or other senior finance leaders from different industries, I'm wondering how do you sort of encapsulate this business when you're sh- when you try to explain to them the uniqueness of what you're up to. What is your, and, and the, the, the phrase elevator pitch isn't, isn't um, appropriate here, but I think you understand what I mean. How do you message to them the uniqueness of all of what you're up to here? I typically, I typically talk about liquidity providing uh, for alternative assets. And then I say, basically, People who own financial products that they need to sell them for whatever reason. That's a that's about where I go, uh, you know, initially to to introduce myself or introduce the company. Occasionally, I'll add in if we have some more time. We'll talk a little bit about the the epigenetic part of it. But typically, I keep it at a pretty high level and say we help people who have owners of certain financial assets that need uh, liquidity. We are here to provide it for them, and then we provide. By doing so, we attempt to provide um, superior returns to our investors on the other side. And that's, that's I found, to be the most effective. I love to get into the epigenetics, and when I have the opportunity, you know, we certainly do, but that's about as far um, as I go. And, and it's funny you bring it up. Um, I was remarking with my wife the other day, um, I've never really had jobs that are really easy to, to describe to people. Um, investment banking probably would have been the one that, would have been the easiest to get a head nod from someone at a, at a networking event. But uh, I don't know, not necessarily by choice, but um, but it is important to be able to encapsulate, um, you know, kind of what you do so you can, you know, get the conversations back. Is there a – have you been surprised in, in terms of what the response is from your peers, not from your, uh, you know, uh, your family or social group, but from your peers? Have you been surprised whether there's disinterest high interest, whatever it might be, but what is that response usually? Again, when we get into the epigenetics, some people are really, really interested in, you know, kind of the biotech uh, part of it, but, but you know, generally I think people understand it. They, they won't 
they won't maybe have known that you could sell a life insurance policy, for instance. Um, but most of the people that I network with and that I've talked to, you know, they, they, they generally kind of get it. Um, they, they, like I said, they may not have known you could, you could do some of these things or these niche markets existed. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's usually met with, yeah, I, I think I kind of understand. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, we move on to talk about what, you know, what they do. And if we have more time, then we, people really get interested in just the knowledge of, of how you can apply, in, in particular, when you think about applying genetic or epigenetic technologies, they immediately think of, you know, health and wellness and, and, and all those things that are, that are very altruistic as well. But they, they really get intrigued about, oh, I didn't realize that had a financial aspect. And then that really dawns on them very quickly, like, oh, my goodness, if you could be better at predicting mortality, just think of the various things you could do and, and, and create, uh, you know, for, for customers. So if we can get to that second level, uh, then usually I just get peppered with questions because people are making the connections between these consumer products. 23andMe, Ancestry, that whole thing, and they're going, wait a minute, of course, of course, if you, you know, if you could, if you could build a better mousetrap around these items, of course you could sell insurance, insurance better, or you could, you could improve the, um, the pricing of it. And, you know, life insurance and annuities are just a humongous market. So if you can get past that first part, um, you, you usually end up kind of being cornered, and it's a lot of fun. When we talk about, uh, the intersection of finance, the finance function with some of these, uh, whether it's biotech science um, or, you know, leading technologies, the question that always goes racing through my mind is, is does the talent challenge uh, become even greater as you look for people to populate your team and at the same time, uh, you know, grasp uh, these new areas that are opening up to business. It, it, it certainly does, and, and um, I think it's also uh, another good example of, you know, a CFO today, and, and it doesn't have to be in financial services and, and looking at this epigenetics opportunity. It could be in any industry looking at new things to do. You know, how do you do it, and how does a CFO really contribute to that and in, in certainly uh, attracting talent uh, and managing that talent is a big thing. Now, we've been fortunate here to, uh, to procure some of the best talent in the world uh, around uh, epigenetics and around machine learning, uh, and part of that is just by, you know, dogged research and determination uh, to engage these individuals. But the other part of it is to is to show them, and I think this is important because the CFO is a senior leader of a company, and this is important under any circumstances in any company, uh, whether you're growing or static, if you have to be able to show your employees and, and investors and stakeholders, you know, what is the opportunity? Why should you come to this company? And, in fact, why should you stay here? And, um, you know, I think that was one of the, as I look back over the past couple of years, specifically to the epigenetic piece of it, I think that was one of our real successes was engaging scientists and other researchers who don't automatically think, of course, of capital and returns and, uh, and uh, stock price and valuation and all those things that, that, that CFOs love to talk about. They're thinking about their craft, their training, the uh, out, 
outcomes of the studies, the efficacy of their of their efforts. And what we had to do was say, guys, look at the opportunity if you could bring what you're doing and what you're best in class at, if we could bring this into this company and be able to provide customers with the benefit of your work and returns to investors on the back of your work, wouldn't that be something really inspiring to do? And the answer was, yes, of course it was. And I think that's, that challenge exists not only with scientists and, and, and people that I would heretofore have not had a lot of interaction with, it exists with everybody every day in your organization. Why am I a part of this? What am I, what are we trying to do? And more and more and more um, is what good is it doing for the customer? Uh, and there, there's a huge amount of work around uh, ESG investing, which is, I think, environmental, social, and uh, governance um, around this idea of, well, what is the role of a corporation? And um, I just was listening to a survey the other day, yesterday, um, about, you know, a, West, a, a minority of people identified returns as the purpose of a public company. So all I'm saying is, is that you really need to create a connection to what are we doing with this thing? Yeah, it's good to make money, and that's fine, and the shareholders want that, and, and we do too, but what are we doing for the customer? And when you're, when you're working with, uh, I think a CFO needs to remember, uh, and I'm reminded of it daily, that we're not, it's, it's not zeros and ones, and it's not just dollars and cents. These are people, and you really need to connect it to, to the customer. And when you can do that, then you can get people to come along. And I think that's really why GWG has been successful even prior to uh, the, um, the epigenics, because we, pr we provide a very valuable product to a niche group of, of life insurance owners that really makes a huge benefit of their life. And people can connect to that. What are the numbers, then, that you're looking at sort of daily? What are those top-of-mind metrics that you pay attention to um, each day? What, what, what's on top of mind for you? Sure. We, we look at, in, in the life insurance side of it, uh, we look at three main, you know, kind of metrics. One of them is our cash flow. Uh, and, you know, anybody who gets to a, a CFO role um, will be, highly in tune to cash flow. Uh, it's a huge issue. And, and it's one of those kind of, funnily enough, that, you know, small business owners know right away. You know, you start a business when you're younger, when you're older. Uh, you know, you, you learn the importance of cash flow on day one. It took me probably several years in different roles to understand. So we look at cash flow from our portfolio. Um, we look at the internal rate of returns that we're getting uh, on our investments. Those are our, our main really two uh, we monitor those very closely. Um, but we also, uh, now getting into the operations a little bit, we, um, because it's important for a CFO to understand the operations. And, and on the life insurance side, you know, we look at our pipeline. So we, we keep track of, uh, you know, what's going on in terms of our products that we're delivering out to the customers. And what stage are they in? Are they taking too long? Are they, is, it, is the pipeline growing or shrinking? Again, this would be very commonplace to anybody who's, run a business and they're looking at their back order for the services they provide. Um, on the epigenetic side, it's a little more difficult. And it's also, I think, a good, uh, another example of, of where a CFO has to be flexible. And in these businesses, which are 
typically pre-revenue or certainly very early stage, you're really your set of metrics is around what am I learning from either the customer or what am I learning from my experiment. Um, so we're not talking about dollars per unit. We're not talking about cash flows or any of that. What we're trying to figure out is, okay, we have a few initiatives going on in these new businesses. And the results of these individual initiatives will steer us to the next initiative. And I've learned this from working with the scientists as you think about clinical trials and things like that. So we've tried to set up, as well as we can, measuring whether we're learning what we thought we were going to learn. And you have to, to do that, you have to have a hypothesis. So we, we put a, a couple hypotheses out there. We say, this is what we think we're going to learn. And then we set about determining whether or not actually the returns are um, consistent or inconsistent with uh, what we thought we were going to learn. And then we try to adjust really from there. We, we, we use a term that you're probably familiar with and a lot of your listeners will be of minimum, minimum viable product. So uh, we try to be as nimble as we can and not put too much dollars to work before we get the return either from what the customer might say about it or what the science is saying. So when you get into that area, it's a little more nebulous in terms of metrics, but you're always being trying to focus on what are you learning? Because if you're not doing that or you're ignoring what you're learning because you don't like the answer or maybe you have an overly optimistic view of it or you're in love with this idea because it was yours, if you start doing that, you're going to end up going down the road and spending a lot of money and, um, and, and missing your opportunity to pivot. Because one thing is for sure is that um, it's never going to go exactly the way you script it out. You're going to find things that don't work as well as you had hoped, but you may also find things that are opportunities or other areas within that work way better than you thought. And, and we've seen some of that in, in the short time that we've been kind of working in this epigenetic space. If anything comes to mind when I ask, is there a, a non-financial metric that uh, these days you're, you're looking at more uh, often than past days? Um, I, would, I would say not other than what I described. I mean, we, we, it, it's financial, but we keep very close track of the dollars that we're able to put back into our customers' hands. And, and that's a little bit of a cheating answer because it is, it is a, uh, a financial metric, but we are we are very focused on the on the life insurance side to uh, measure and track the dollars that are that we're giving to insurance policy owners over and above what their other opportunities would have been with that policy. So it's a little bit like a, a net promoter score, but but I'd say you know not not really other other than that one on the life insurance side and and whatever whatever uh, kind of minimally viable product we have in the market as it relates to the the epigenetics. So, so I would say no, there's not one that I would expect in the in the um, epigenetic world, I would expect more to evolve there as we start thinking about the different things that we can do for a customer based upon our research that may have zero to do with uh, our, our gaining financially. And, and by that, I can think of things like health and wellness and access to health and health care and understanding kind of a health literacy. That's not upon us here yet. I could see that as being an outcome um, that would be important uh, for our team and our company to track. Uh, right now, we don't. We don't. We're not far enough along. We'll be back with CFO Bill Atkinson of GHG Holdings after our Thought Leader Minute. Hi. Good morning. We're at the Sage Intact Modern SaaS Finance Summit. 
And I'm here with Ben Murray, who is CFO of Cartograph of Dubuque, Iowa. Now, one of the interesting things uh, Ben shared with me earlier is that he has started a blog known as the SASCFO.com, and it has all sorts of resources and analysis. That's my way of thinking. I'm going to let him tell us a little more about it. But Ben, what led you to, to create a blog? As a CFO who already has enough to do in their life, why? Why start a blog? Hi, Jack. Great to be here. That's a great question. So about three years ago, I started the blog. And, you know, there are a lot of blogs out there, but I felt like they didn't give you the full answer. You know, they give you kind of the part of the answer, and I wanted to give you the full solution. So I started posting all my SAS metrics and forecast models online for everyone to download for free and also wrote and am writing in-depth posts on, on SAS metrics and economics and share that with SAS founders and those in, in SAS accounting and finance. I don't think I mentioned it earlier. The name of the blog is the SAS CFO.com. Good news, CFO Ben Murray of Cartograph has agreed to answer a few more of our questions after today's featured CFO interview. So don't go anywhere. You'll want to hear Ask Ben You shared a few, I think, what I would call finance strategic uh, decisions for us and, and moments, uh, but I, I need to ask you one. This is sort of our signature uh, question where I ask you to look back over your career and given your lines of sight uh, into the numbers, into the organization, um, you identified a risk or an opportunity. Has anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yes, absolutely. And, and this one is like a lot of others, I think, is wasn't a success, um, but it taught me a great deal. And it was it was uh, around the end of my time at HPS. We were attempting to remake the business. Uh, the the um, credit crisis was ending, and our main source of income was ending. And we were like a lot of companies find themselves were. We're trying to take what was a really good service and a really good franchise and transform it into something beyond the credit crisis. And I was leading a project to really determine what those strategic alternatives were. And we, I won't go into them, but we had come up with a, what I thought was a really good mix of options that we could pursue that could bring us to the, you know, kind of out of the crisis and into, uh, you know, the post-crisis world. And at the end of the day, we weren't successful. I wasn't successful personally at doing that. And, and it was really for two main reasons. One is I probably underestimated the importance of getting the buy-in and working with both the board and the team to kind of take everybody along and take the time to go through why this makes, why I thought it made sense, and bring in other other um, inputs into it, and really build, it sounds, it sounds very simple, but really build the organizational support for the initiative. And without that, you really aren't going to go anywhere, even if it's a great idea. And, and, and even, I, as I look back now, knowing what I know about the last, let's call it seven years, and what's happened in that space, I think a lot of the stuff that we were talking about and thinking about would, would have really been uh, a 
bringing everybody along and having the patients to go through why this mattered, how it was going to work, um, what the challenges may be to the customer. Because, you know, that's probably a piece I missed as well is it sounded really good from my perspective, from an investment banking, you know, kind of strategy perspective, but you really need to focus on the customer. How does this thing that you're talking about, which was a pretty radical departure uh, from what we had been doing the previous, say, five or six years, how does this thing impact the customer and the mission of this organization? And, and failing to do that, I think, was, the, was my key takeaway. And as we sit here today uh, with GWG, you know, we are embarking, as we've been talking about, we're embarking on, through this transaction with Beneficent and through some of the epigenetics work, you know, it's a transformation. It's an it's a evolution of the company, and the customer and the mission can't be left behind. Otherwise, you're going to have what, what I think was one of the issues there. It's just a you know, good idea that never got implemented because you just didn't get the buy-in. And I think that, I think that uh, again, as you, as you sit from the CFO perspective desk, you're always going to be faced with both opportunities and threats that are going to, that are going to force you to move in different directions or take what you're really good at and, and make something else that you're really good at. And you just cannot leave the customer view out of it, and you cannot leave your peers kind of behind on, on where you're going. Because otherwise it becomes a good idea that doesn't get implemented and doesn't help anybody. CFO Bill Atkison enters the mentoring round with us after these words from our sponsor. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. All right, well, we're going to jump to our, to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and advise future finance leaders. What's exciting you about finance and business today? Funny thing, I think you've already answered this in multiple ways, but we're going to ask you. What's exciting you about finance and business today? Well, you know, finance and business is a worldwide, everybody on the planet issue. It affects everybody, whether you're talking about financial products or financial markets. Uh, so it is always relevant, more, no more so today than when you, when you think about my kind, of, my kind of little piece of the finance world, which is a little sliver of the ginormous, uh, you know, global finance, but when you think about aging baby boomers, I mean, it is, it is super relevant uh, and, and even, in, like I say, MySpace, getting more and more and more and more relevant every day, which I think is important. I like to be in places and working on things where it's relevant and it means somebody, means something to somebody. And with the technology, the financial technology and, and that we now have, um, 
you know, we're able to connect people and, and do more with what we have. And, and finance is maybe even a little behind the curve on a lot of those issues, but there's a huge um, opportunity to continue to make finance um, even more um, relevant. And one of my personal passions is, you know, trying to help kind of what I'll call everyday, regular non-finance people understand what it means to them and, and how to be successful financially, even if you're not a, you know, a, a finance guy. And I think that is more relevant than ever today and will, and will continue to be. What do you wish someone had told you the first time you stepped into the, the CFO office uh, back uh, prior to GWD? When you stepped into that office for the first time, you earned that title. What is that one piece of advice you wish someone had shared with you? Well, I'm going to give you two answers. I'll, I'll give you the, the first answer has less to do with the CFO and more to do with the general. I wish someone would have told me at an earlier age of the importance of relationships and connections, which would seem obvious, but uh, as I look back, that's, that's an area where I could have done more work. Uh, and I think from the CFO side, uh, I would say the main thing is that your CFO is really the senior leader of an organization. And so you, you need to look at it as contributing across the, the organization and not really as just the CFO. Uh, and by that I mean you have not only freedom but a responsibility to be immersed and to understand what's going on all around the, all around the firm, even, even though you're uniquely challenged and uniquely positioned with, let's say, audits and financial statements and uh, investors and all those things are clearly within your, you know, that's a lot of what you do, but the client aspect of it, um, getting out on sales calls, understanding what's going on in operation, you know, those, those things are actually as important as what we would call our typical CFO because it's a, a typical, uh, you know, when I got to my job and, and my CFO and a lot of your listeners, look, you already come to that job, otherwise you wouldn't have received it. You already come with whether it's accounting and auditing and tax and planning and budgeting and modeling and analysis, you already come with that tool set. You've, you've gotten a lot of that along the way. You may not have uh, been exposed to or cared to tour through, you know, communications and sales and senior relationship management and operations. And so I think I would have, uh, the, the, the advice I would give a new CFO would be, look, do your job good. Make sure all those base things that you're responsible for get done because you don't, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't skimp on an audit. You can't skimp on a 10K or anything like that. However, be aggressive and get out into the business and get in front of the customers um, because you will not only issue spot things way faster than maybe someone who is developing a product and is not aware of a, a regulatory or accounting or capital constraint that you could spot right away, uh, you'll also become a lot more in tune to uh, your products and services and how they matter. And then when you think of lending your, um, your, your financial skill to it, you'll just be better able to do it if you know what, what the customers want and what's going on in the shop. So in a nutshell, I'd say, you know, get out from behind that desk and, uh, and get into the business and get in front of the customers. Do you have a personal habit or routine that you believe is in some way contributed to your professional success? Yeah, I, I, I do, and, and I, 
I don't know how much it's contributed, but I, um, you know, I'm very deliberate about, um, you know, kind of just reviewing every day, um, kind of what's on my plate, what are my big initiatives, what are my small initiatives, uh, and getting kind of reconnected around attitude, because attitude is really, really important in terms of your uh, outlook and, and trying to stay on the can-do side of problems, because you're always dealing with problems of one form or another. And so um, when I get in the morning, virtually every day, unless there's you know a snow day like we have today and I end up getting in late or something, virtually every day I spend 30 minutes. Um, I, I use a technology, simple technology tool uh, where, you know, a simple to-do list, but I uh, continually comb it and go through it every day. And I, I also, along that line, this may sound a little geeky, but I keep track of my, um, my time. So I use a, a tool, a free tool called Toggle, which is T-O-G-G-L, um, and it's made for professionals who are billing their time. I don't bill my time, but I keep track of my time every day um, with a reasonable amount of precision in, say, eight, seven or eight categories. Um, and I do it for two reasons. One, so I can look back and see where my time is being spent, which is maybe obvious. But two is it reminds me that when I click the button, the little play button on the timer, I'm on the clock and I'm working. And I'm not here to, you know, I, mean, I love having fun with my coworkers, but uh, it reminds me that I'm on the clock, it's time to work, and um, so, so I think I think those kind of two together help me just get focused for the day and, and to, um, you know, try to keep a real positive attitude and, and keep pushing forward. Okay. You know, I want to uh, – you mentioned networking earlier, building relationships, Bill, and I know we're running short on time here, by the way, so I want to uh, be aware of that. But um, it, it seems to me that you uh, – sort of excelled in communications. At some part in your career, uh, you must have been aware that this is an area that I can excel at, or maybe not. Um, I'm curious if you ever joined maybe Toastmasters or, or some other uh, organization that allowed you to create, you know, to, to grow your communication skills. Well, you know, that's a great question, and, and the answer is no. Um, and I didn't really know uh, that I was you know, particularly good at communication. Uh, I, I did a long time ago. I was in a band, and I performed, and, and so I'm com I was always comfortable in front of people, but it really wasn't until I got to GWG, and it was a really interesting story. I started here in the summer of 2008, right, or 2014, right around Memorial Day. Well, we went on our IPO roadshow in July, so my first, you know, basically two months on, on the job was crisscrossing the country with the CEO and doing presentations um, uh, about the company. Of course, I didn't know really much about the company at the time, um, and but it but it taught me two things. One, um, you know, it really gave me a good, uh, solid foundation into the how effective communication can help when you're talking to customers and, and uh, employees and stakeholders. But two, I was able to you know kind of get a you know get some real good presentation experience, and really from kind of that time forward, um, largely at the, at the, you know, kind of at the request of the CEO, but I also really like doing it, um, you know, I, I made opportunities for myself to uh, to speak and, and to get in front of people. Um, so it, 
it kind of really just evolved. I would say this, though. Um, you know, you need to be deliberate about it and get out and do it, even if it's not super comfortable. Um, because if you don't do it, you that skill atrophies. And it, it's happened with me, you know, working through the, the, the Venn transaction. You know, I spent a lot of time, you know, doing that type of stuff and less time uh, out, uh, out presenting. And so you need to keep doing it and get in front of people. And um, I think that uh, it, it, the answer, no, I, did, I didn't really uh, formally, uh, you know, take any training. I, I have since, and, we pra- you know, we practice and, and I rehearse, and, and, you know, we do we do that before all of our presentations because it's, you know, no matter how often you do it, I think if you're doing a 20- or 30-minute presentation, you need to, you know, really rehearse and take it seriously. And above all, stay within your time frame. That's the big – that's the one piece of advice I'd give for aspiring presenters is keep your presentation right within its time frame. And that's really very hard to do, and it's hard for me to do even after I've done it 100 times. If you give me 20 minutes, it's still hard to stay within within that. Okay, we're up to our final question. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as CFO of GWG? That's a good one, and it's a, it's a pretty easy one. The, our priority is to solidify really our strategic three-year strategic plan centered on the customer, because from that we comes all of the other items that we do. And now think about, we're a public company, so we need the message to shareholders and to the board and, and obviously to lots of different stakeholders. So my number one priority is, and, and it's really almost an ongoing one, is to ensure that all of our stakeholders understand direction of the business, how we intend to create value, and how they can change whether we're doing it or not in a nutshell. Hard to do, easy to explain. Bill Ashes, thank you for joining us on CFO Volume. You are welcome and it's been my pleasure. And what are the more popular uh, posts, perhaps, that you've uh, you've put up on what is known as the SASCFO.com? Uh, some of the most popular is, is uh, forecast models. So headcount forecast models is a really popular download, as well as just a general SAS forecast model to help founders forecast the financials for their business. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback just saying thanks for sh- making these resources freely available. Clearly, it's a pain point. What are, why are they struggling, do you think? What's your sense that so many CFOs are 
finding your resources handy at the moment? I, I think it's really hitting the spot with SaaS founders because they don't have the finance knowledge. And as they're scaling from, say, 1 to 10 to 15 million, they don't have any accountants or, or finance folks on staff. And they're trying to do it themselves. And they reach a point where it's just too difficult. So they then start looking for help, looking for forecast models, or looking for SaaS finance uh, advice. But Ben, uh, we were talking about why uh, you were compelled to start this blog. Um, as a CFO, uh, frankly, how do you manage your time, and how much time do you dedicate to this? Yeah, it's difficult because, right, being a full-time CFO is a full-time position. And really, I just try to find time, say, when I'm traveling or on weekends or nights, to write these articles and, the, and create the forecast models and templates and put them out there. I just feel that there is so much potential out there to share SaaS knowledge. Uh, so I, I really uh, you know, listen to uh, readers' questions or just emails that I get on topics that are pain points that they're having and then create a post around that or a SaaS template around that to, to share the next time. Let me ask, where do you find your information, uh, information sources today? As a CFO, uh, you know, it's interesting. We, uh, we see so many CFOs looking for uh, additional resources. As a blogger, you must have quite a, a stack of them, <laughs> if it was the print world still, but in the digital realm. Where do you get your information? Yeah, I read a lot of blogs, uh, of course. Uh, so try to, you know, one of those Tampangas, Saster, of course, and really try to stay up to, t up to date on some of those topics. And a lot of the, the topics that I push out on my blog just come from the day-to-day -day life of being a SAS CFO and the pain points that I have that are relevant for my audience. So some it comes a bit from reading blogs out there and also just kind of my day-to-day -day life as a SAS CFO. And that's a, uh, going back to your day-to-day -day life as a CFO, looking for the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a SAS CFO over the next 12 months? What would be those top-of-mind items for you? Yep. Top of mind is, is scaling efficiently, so growth at the right cost. You know, so really focused on sales and marketing and, and how we can efficiently scale and acquire ARR, uh, again, in the most cost-efficient manner. So that's definitely top of mind. And, and recruiting is always a big thing. Recruiting for the right people, recruiting software engineers, uh, that's, that's always top of the list as well. Now, Cartograph must have gone through the evolution. I think, uh, how old is Cartograph a company today? 20-plus years. 20-plus years. So clearly it began in the on-premise world, and it ma made yes. the evolution over to SaaS. Is that where you first appeared on the scene, perhaps, or were you there, or did you go back longer? Yeah, they definitely start. I've been there almost six years, and they definitely started on premise, you know, floppy disks, and uh, yeah, did start making that transition probably right around when I started going from a legacy product and pushing it more to to the cloud. What exactly are Cartographs offerings in today? We we develop software for cities and counties to manage their fiscal infrastructure. So think street signs, pavement. Uh, any kind of physical asset out in the city or county, we uh, manage the labor and the work around those assets. Large uh, public sector client base. Exactly. Yes. Do you do commercial as well? Or uh, it's primarily public public sector. Well, then we look forward to catching up. We'd love to have you uh, join us uh, for a CFO interview, our traditional format sometime. But thank you uh, for joining us and telling us uh, about Cartograph and the SAS CFO.com. Thanks, Jack. Really appreciate it. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. 
If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.